Titus 2, 4-10 And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Um, it's good to be with you guys this morning. If you're visiting, it might be helpful for you to know that our sort of normal flow uh, week in and week out is to go through books of the Bible. And right now we're in the middle of a teaching series through the book of Titus. And so if you brought a Bible with you this morning, hopefully you did, uh, go ahead and turn right now to the book of Titus. It's towards the end of the Bible. Uh, it's one of the last books uh, in the New Testament. If you're having trouble find it, finding it, you can sort of like look up where it is in the table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. And uh, if any of you do not have a Bible... Uh, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab one right outside the door. Uh, you can get it now if you want, or on your way out, and just take it home as our gift to you. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Lord God, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to open up your word, to learn and to be fed, uh, and uh, by the words that you've just preserved throughout the centuries for our good, for our benefit, for our growth. And I pray, Lord, that in a, in a passage of Scripture like this, that you would open our eyes just to see the wonder and beauty of who you are and the desires that you have for us as your people to adorn and display your truth, your goodness, your beauty to a world that desperately longs to know it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, so this last Christmas, uh, just a few months ago, we bought our son Haddon his first big kid bike. That's what he calls it. Because the bike he had before that was really like a just plastic tricycle that he sort of like pushed himself on. Uh, but now he's got like a real bike with these training wheels and like the whole, the whole deal. And so now that he's got a big kid bike, just like his sister, I've been taking my kids out uh, over the last few months to sort of practice riding from time to time. And Haddon's big thing right now is ever since his first fall, uh, whenever he starts to lean, like when he gets close to the curb, or when he's coming off of a curb, whenever his bike starts to lean, he stiffens up because he gets scared of falling over. And, they, and then, But when you stiffen up like that, as, as many of you know, hopefully most everyone here knows how to ride a bike, but when you stiffen up like that, that, that doesn't help when you're, when you're uh, wobbling, and it almost ensures that you do fall over. And so I've been sort of coaching him and working uh, with him on, on pushing straight through the awkward leaning stage to, to straighten out. And, and Geneva's big thing as I'm working with her is figuring out how to get the wheels always going forward when, when one pedal gets stuck down. If you remember, like little kids' bikes, uh, they, they only go one way, right? Like if you, if, if you push the pedals uh, the other way, if you go backwards, uh, that's actually how you apply the brakes. And so if one pedal gets stuck in like this one specific angle down, it's, you, you kind of have to use your other foot to, to, to bring it up. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Like it, it's kind of this awkward situation and it's hard to explain to like this five-year-old like how, how to make that happen. But I, I have to show her and coach her and work with her on how to get those pedals moving again. Now in some sense, 
That is what the Apostle Paul is doing in his letter to Titus. That is the purpose of his letter to his former student, Titus. He's giving a list of instructions to Titus uh, on, on, on how to live out the Christian faith. These are new these are new churches, new communities of faith. They've still kind of got the training wheels on. They're trying to figure out, like, how do we do this thing? How do we live together now as followers of Jesus? What should our churches look like? What kind of leaders need to be in place? And so Paul is writing to Titus specifically with the context of new churches in mind. And he's giving, a, 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 at this point in our text, a list of instructions to different groups of people in the churches throughout the island of Crete. Before Paul and Titus uh, arrived on the island, uh, if you remember we mentioned earlier in our series, uh, there was no gospel presence at all. And so Paul and Titus were going around preaching the gospel, planting these churches. Titus is left behind. Paul has moved forward on to other missionary work. But now at this point, he's writing back to Titus to instruct him on what a healthy new church looks like. And in chapter 2, he starts to break down specific instructions to different groups of people on what it looks like to display the gospel in our, our different seasons of life. And so again, if you're just joining us, it might be helpful to have some context on where we've been. Last week, uh, Paul was, wrote instructions to Titus on how to uh, uh, encourage these different groups to be healthy. There's a lot of new Christians on the island. They're still maturing in their faith, figuring out how to get what they now know up here, this new information about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how to get that new information up here to get experience right down here and, and, and to spill out into their life so that they have an impact out there in the world. The idea is that when you encounter, when you encounter real uh, real spiritual vitality, when you encounter the true grace of Christ, uh, it changes everything about you. It doesn't just change what, how you think with your head. It doesn't just give you talking points. It changes your affections and your heart. It changes the way that you live in the world for the glory of God and for the good of others, the good of your neighbors. And so in the first big chunk, chunk of Titus 2, Paul breaks down what does it look like for different groups of people to live out the gospel. He started last week by talking about what does this look like for older men and for older women. And then this week, we're going to look at younger men and women and bond servants. And the sort of uh, uh, main point of last week's sermon is the same main point that we have for this sermon. Since it is one flowing thought, Paul gave instruction to older men and older women. Now he's carrying on. Uh, it continues on into our text this morning for younger men and younger women. And our point that we're unpacking is this. That if we want to make a meaningful difference for the glory of God and the good of others, then we need healthy lives that flow from healthy doctrine. If we want to make a meaningful difference for the glory of God and the good of others, and if King's Cross Church is your home, you know that that is our banner, that is our refrain. We want to be a church that exists for the glory of God and the good of others. Then we need healthy lives that flow out of healthy doctrine. The idea is that what you believe always flows into your behavior. This isn't just true of Christians. This is true of every single worldview. Many of us come from an atheistic or agnostic background, or maybe you come from like another religious uh, background, or maybe this hyper-fundamentalist religious background. Uh, uh, regardless of what your belief is in any moment of time, what you believe is most true, what you believe about what, how goodness is defined and what, what beauty is. 
that will determine how you live your life. We all have underlying beliefs that dictate our behaviors. And so, um, by way of review, again, last week, we talked about how culture has these expectations on what you and I should be like when we're old, right? Like last week, we talked about um, how uh, uh, for those who follow Christ and are older in age, what that looks like when their belief turns into behavior. And, and we talked about how culture has these expectations on what you and I should be like when we're old. For example, we're often told like the end goal of all men is to be either like the Dos Equis guy, right? Like the most interesting man in the world. Or like this uh, old, judgmental, cranky dude that just uh, 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 looks down on all the younger guys underneath him. But in contrast to that, Paul broke down how, no, older men who belong to Christ should be sober-minded. They should have a dignity about them. They should be self-controlled, sound in faith, hope, and love. They should be steadfast, plotting faithfully for the glory of God and the good of others. We talked about how the end goal of all women, uh, culture tells us that the end goal of all women should be to hide their age, to do everything that they can to, to act younger and to look younger. But we talked about how, in contrast, Paul paints this picture where a crown of gray can be something worth celebrating. It's a sign of faithfulness and, and years of wisdom and service of others. How older women are encouraged to be reverent. They're encouraged not to be gossiped and to also be sober-minded. We saw this in verse 2 and 3. I'll read those again for you. Paul said, older men, you are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And then he continues the thought in verse 3. He continues in the last half of verse 3, and he says that they, the older women, are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So here now is where Paul transitions into the next group. Now he's addressing younger women. And so that's our first point for this morning. He gives a word specifically to younger women. What does he say again? He says, they, speaking of the older women, are to teach what is good. Now, so everything that follows is defined by God as good. They, older women, are to teach what is good. What is good? Train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now, we'll unpack that. He says, he's essentially saying to these older women, look, don't use your words to tear down, which is the habit of a lot of other, other older women, but use your words rather to build up. Now, this is countercultural in Paul's day, and it's countercultural in our day, too, because we live in a culture where those who are older in age are told to compete with one another. They're also told to look, sound, and act like they're younger and, and, and maybe judge those who aren't doing as a good, good a job of looking and acting younger as we are. But here Paul says, no, you older women, you have something valuable to give that younger folks don't have. You should take what God has given you and train the younger women. Disciple them. Show them what it looks like to follow the Lord with dignity and with reverence. He transitions to younger women now, and he gives another countercultural call with what he calls the younger women to. Now, it might be helpful to, for you to know contextually that in Crete, the island that this is all taking place in, in Crete, it was common for a woman to be disinterested in the affairs of her home, especially if it got in the way of like her own desires. Remember, the way of the Cretan is to put yourself before anyone else. 
put yourself before anyone else. But here, Paul says, no, if you belong to Jesus, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're older, whether you're younger, if you belong to Jesus, he's actually liberated you from the slavery of serving your own sin and self-righteousness. He's freed you up to, to do good to others. And so he says in verse 4, going into verse 5, he tells the older women, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now there's nothing controversial there, right? (laughs) But listen, what do we do when we see something in the scriptures that we don't like or that we don't understand? The temptation for us would be to sort of downplay it, or to brush it away, or to want to pick and choose the parts that maybe we we like, that affirm how we already feel and reject those that we don't like. But if this really is the Word of God, which you're if you're a Christian this morning, you do believe this to be the Word of God, and I understand that, that there are a handful of us in this room that, that might not believe that, but if, if, if and so I'm speaking to the followers of Jesus here, if this is the Word of God, then our job is to press in to the scriptures with our honest questions, with our hard questions, and do our work to find out what is really being said. Because sometimes what is being said is not what we assume what is being said. But then still, on the other side, once we've done our work, knowing that we ultimately submit our lives to this word, even when it seems difficult to. And truthfully, there are things in the Bible that make some people, those on the outside, look in and say, man, how archaic, how bigoted, how can you even believe that in the year 2020? As long, but as long as we're a church of Christ, like we'll endure those questions. We'll happily answer them. Because as a church, we want to submit ourselves to the scriptures as the inerrant, sufficient word given us to God by God for the formation of our hearts, for the good of our souls, and also for just the, the flourishing and for the, the renewal of the world. Now, some people, when you read these verses, some people assume at least one of two things. They might assume that Paul's saying that the Christian way of a woman is that every woman needs to get married, every woman has to have kids, and every woman needs to stay at home. Admittedly, there have been some who have waved the banner of Christian that have used and abused these verses in order to push that sort of political agenda inside the church. You need to know that that is not what the scriptures teach as a whole. That is not what the whole Bible teaches at all. We see all kinds of women who work outside the home. And that that's actually encouraged and celebrated all throughout the scriptures. Like you've got Lydia, who, if you remember in our series in Philippi, uh, uh, we kind of went through her story uh, on, on the on, on the in our series through the book of Philippians. And Lydia was like the successful business tycoon. She's a hashtag boss lady of the first century. Right? She had a house in Thyatira and another house in Philippi, which were both like world trade areas. That's like saying you've got a house in New York City and in Hong Kong. Right? She was on the launch team for the church in Philippi. She was one of the first converts. And she single-handedly helped fund a ton, fund a ton of Paul's missionary and church planting journeys for the next several years after he moved on from Philippi. You also have women like Elizabeth, who was barren for most of her life, was celebrated and honored, but even though she, she couldn't have children. What about like the, the Proverbs 31, probably the most famous chapter of the Bible on the picture of an ideal of the ideal wife, the ideal woman, and it says in Proverbs 31 that that her heart was for her family and for her home, 
But she also worked outside the home. She was a beast of a businesswoman, buying and selling goods out in the marketplace to support her family. And so the issue, to be clear, is not whether a woman needs to stay home or not. Fact is, in Cretan culture, generally speaking, in the first century, younger women that Paul is addressing were married and had kids. And so he's giving a general exhortation because most of the women around this age, this was true, this was their life stage. And so he's giving this general exhortation to this demographic. And he says, older women, teach those younger women how to love their husbands and children that they already have. Have those women invest into the good of their families for their family's ultimate good and growth in the gospel. The big idea is that a woman should not be idle with her hands. It's the same thing given to the men that we talked about last week, right? She shouldn't be idle with her hands, which in Cretan culture in the first century, like that, that was... That was, the, uh, uh, that was what was most commonplace. Every person out for themselves. Every person not caring about the good or the flourishing of the people around them. Just living in their own worlds. And so Paul's saying, no. God desires something so much better, so much more beautiful for men and for women. And so teach the younger women not to be idle with their hands and that the first fruits of her time are given to her home. Now, culture would teach us that the home is an inconvenient place to work, that it's a lesser place to work. Someone recently went on daytime television on Good Morning America recently and argued that, that homemaking is living a lesser life. That's what this woman said. She said, if you, it's somebody who's, who, who's just, just at the home raising kids is living a lesser life. And behind that statement is this belief because remember, every, every, everything, every behavior that we have has an, an underlying uh, belief. We call them presuppositions. And the presupposition below that, behind that statement, is this belief that meaning and value comes from self-actualization. You live for your best life at all costs. Men are, men are taught that. Women are taught that. Older folks are taught that. Younger folks are taught that. Live for your best life at all costs. But when you draw that out, to its final conclusion, to its fullest conclusion, you see, like it just, it just can't. A society can't stand on 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 the weight of that. That when people start to stand in your way of your ideal self, then all of a sudden they become liabilities to you that need to be minimized or managed, rather than honored and respected and cared for. Kids are suddenly reduced to accessories rather than image bearers entrusted to you to lay your life down for is ultimately not empowering to women. It robs the unique design that God has for a mother and in a family, to, and, and, and it leads to using people rather than loving them. And so out of love for the flourishing of families on Crete, Paul confronts this head on. He calls out the older men, he calls out the older uh, women, and then he, 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 he calls on the older women to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and, and, and children and to keep their homes. Now, you, you might be thinking, is this really something that like, needs to be taught? Like, is this something that really needs to be learned? Like, sh- like if, if, it's, if, you're, if you have a spouse and children, like, shouldn't you just love them naturally? And the answer is like, yes, you should, but it's sort of both and. 
right? Like you should, uh, uh, you should love your, your spouse and children naturally, but you should also actively and intentionally cultivate that love. Love is, is certainly a felt desire, but it's also something that you decide and act on. It's both of those. Love is not just a feeling. It is a feeling, but it's not just a feeling. It's also an action. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller uh, uh, clarify, uh, they kind of unpack this in their book on marriage together. Uh, in that, they, they write, in any relationship, there will be a, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. And so what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. It's a decision that you make. It's an action. And man, let me tell you, when life gets crazy, when your bank account goes low, when, 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 when kids start to fill the home, it becomes all the more difficult to choose to act in love. My wife is amazing at this. She stays at home every once in a while. She takes on part-time contract work, um, doing like writing and editing uh, jobs. Uh, but, but, but she takes care of her home. She keeps it together. And let me tell you, like what she does for maybe 12 hours a day sometimes, if it's a long work day for me, um, like I can't handle two hours of. Uh, probably like a, just some real talk here. A low point for me this week uh, was... When I had to drop uh, Alyssa off somewhere, uh, and then I had to go home, and I had to get ready, and I had to keep my eye on my three-year-old and our one-year-old. Uh, he napped in the car on the way home, so I was like, oh, great. He's going to be awake like the whole time we're at home. And, that, and so I had to like get ready like while, while they were uh, around, and then I had to get them in the car, and I had to go to Geneva, our five-year-old school, pick her up from school. I forgot something at home, and so I get that. And dude, I like my patience was thin. I snapped at my kids. Just real talk, not proud of it. I snapped at my kids and I had to just ask for both of their forgiveness. I had to, you know, lead them in repentance, sort of model that to them and just apologize that, that daddy was not nice uh, to them, um, did not speak to them the way that Jesus would want me to. And, um, man, it was, a, it was a teachable moment to me uh, and it just made me realize, like, man, I can't imagine having to do this for 10, uh, 12 hours uh, a day, like five, six days a week. Um, it is a, this is an honorable, valuable position for any man or woman to fill. And Keller here, he talks about how sometimes you just got to decide to love, even when it's hard. There are going to be times where it doesn't, doesn't feel like you, the natural thing is to be kind or to be loving. And it's something that you're going to have to work towards. It's something that needs to be taught, something that needs to be caught. So that's why he tells the older women to teach the younger women in that. Clearly, I'm still learning. I need to be taught. I need those lessons. And Paul knows that that's the tendency of our heart and that we need to be taught in these things as well. The other thing that is sometimes assumed in passages like this is that the Bible is teaching 
this this uh, this idea of like male dominance here, with the talk of keeping the home, submission to husbands, like that. It's teaching this where where, where ma- males are dominant and that females are being oppressed. Uh, that is not what the Bible is teaching. So then, what does this mean? What does this terminology mean? Now, we can spend a whole other sermon on a whole other day unpacking the difficulty of these words and in this text, but let me just say this. What the Bible calls husbands and wives to, in terms of these uh, New Testament words of headship and submission, is so much better and so much more beautiful than what some assume it means. It does not mean that the husband always gets his way and that the wife exists merely as a pawn in his kingdom. The biblical picture of marriage is actually totally contrary to that. It's this dance where the husband and the wife serve as equal partners, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal in value, and worthy of respect, equal partners to make much of God's kingdom. And as equal partners, we complement one another. The husband does this by loving his wife the way that Christ loves the church. That's how headship is defined in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, love your wives the way that Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? He laid his life down for her. He set aside his throne. He set aside his power. He set aside his privilege for her good and for her flourishing. It's a call to die to himself. It's this environment where his wife is cared for and flourishes. Not because she she can't do that without him, but because that's the role that's given to him by God. He needs to care for her. Otherwise, he'll selfishly and self-centeredly care for himself. He needs to die to himself and care for her and, fl- and for her and for her flourishing. It's this environment where children uh, grow in the Lord and in the grace of God under that. And it's a call for husbands to die to their own dreams at times, to their desires, to their preferences in order to make this gospel legacy happen in their home. And it's a call for wives to love and encourage and respect their husbands, not, not, when, not when he makes sinful choices, because her allegiance is ultimately to the Lord and not to him, but in obedience to the Lord, she loves and encourages her husband. And look, when you have both of these things happening, when it's this dance back and forth of, 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 of mutual care and love and, and leading, uh, then God says, you reveal to the world my good design and my eternal pleasure. A husband that does not like misogynistically dominate his wife, but lovingly lays his life down for her like Jesus did, and a wife that doesn't usurp him but trust her assumingly godly husband is the kind of relationship that deep down the world would never look like. When it's working in that way, the, deep down the world would never look at in disgust or in disdain. But they'd see something beautiful. They'd see something mutual respect, mutual honor, inequality, and in a, in a partnership where the one complements the other. Now, these verses that we've unpacked are just a snapshot of what the Bible calls us to. 
we saw a snapshot of what he calls older men to, what a snapshot of what he calls older women to. And this is just a snapshot of what a womanhood looks like when a young woman is transformed by the gospel. There's so much more that could be said, but this is the snapshot that Paul gets at. And the idea here is that their belief in the gospel would translate into behavior that brings glory to God and good to others. He finishes that verse and he says, do this, teach all these things so that the word of God may not be reviled. We live out the beauty of the gospel by living in light of sound doctrine. Number two, he gives a word specifically to younger men. So he addressed the older men and women now, he's addressing the younger women and now the younger men. And here's what he says to the younger men. He says, verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And that's it. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but what Paul just did, what the Holy Spirit just did through Paul is hilarious, right? He says, because if you look at the whole context of things, he says to the older man, and then he gives several character traits to emulate. And then he says to the older woman, and then he gives several more. And to the younger woman, like we just unpacked, he gives a handful more. He says, you younger men, be self-controlled. End of sentence. He knows how simple-minded we are, that we just need self-control. Men, this is a call to just show up to work, show up, be present at home, put down that extra beer, pick up a Bible, and do something with your life that actually counts for something. Self-control. Paul makes this laser-pointed singular request because he knows that if young men were more self-controlled, there would be huge implications. A force to be reckoned with. That would make the gates of hell shudder. Now, I won't belabor this point because we'll do a deep dive into self-control next week. We have a special guest next week who's going to do a deep dive into this biblical fruit of self-control. But to the young men in this room, you do need to hear this. God would not have written it in these pages if we did not need this. You know why he keeps it for simple, so simple to us? He breaks it down so simple for us because if you had to boil down what is sort of like the weak point, the Achilles heel or the kryptonite for most young men, it's that we are ruled by our own desires. Our thoughts, our affections, our passions, our actions are ruled by our self-centered desires. Without self-control, we would choose drunkenness over sobriety. We would choose gluttony over moderation. We would choose laziness or apathy over hard and excellent work. We would choose pornography or adultery over faithfulness. Sin over holiness. When you are able to say no to something, in the present, in order to say yes to something that counts in the long run, that shapes everything. It changes everything. It can change an entire family's multi-generational legacy. In the same way, a lack of self-control can have damaging effects for generations to come. D.L. Moody puts it pointedly when he said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. 
apart from Jesus, of course. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, Moody says, I aim to be that man. So young men in the room, let's inspire, let's aspire to be like D.L. Moody, that kind of man. Let's aspire to be like Paul encourages Titus to teach the young men, that kind of man. A man after God's own heart, walking in the ways of Jesus. Simple instruction, be self-controlled, but massive implications. What God commands, the good news for us is that what God commands, he always provides the means to obey. That is why self-control, interestingly enough, is actually listed in Galatians 5 as one of the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, if you want to have a life of self-control, you need to be abiding in Jesus. You, you need to have the Spirit indwelling you. You don't work your way by obedience into the good life that, that, that God called you to. It's like, no, because Jesus has impacted you, because he's transformed you, because he's wooed you by living and dying in your place, let that gospel transform you and produce the fruit of self-control. So it's not that you do this in order to get into the kingdom, it's but because you already stand in the kingdom by grace. Now live as though that is true. Does that make sense? Paul transitions in the next couple of verses to a specific young man. Uh, Paul now directs his attention specifically to Titus when he says in, in verse 7 and 8, he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We don't have time to do a deep dive in these two verses, but basically he says here, Paul says to Titus, who is a young man, just like the ones he just addressed, Paul is a specific young man, and, and Paul tells, or Titus is a specific young man, and Paul tells him to be an example to others. It's this basic principle that we talked about last week, that you actually don't have to be old in age to actually be a worthy example to those around you. Once again, we display the gospel by living in accordance with sound doctrine. When we do that, it brings glory to God and good to others. And then lastly, we see a specific word to bondservants. A word to bondservants. Verse 9 and 10. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which means steal. I had to look that up. Uh, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, that word bondservants is this Greek word, doulos. Doulos has historically been translated into the word slave. For understandable reasons, many English translations translate that, that word doulos into bondservants. Now, I want to quickly break this down to you, this idea of a bondservant, because this verse has been wrongly used to accuse the Bible of endorsing slavery as we understand it. All right? It's been wrongly uh, used. This verse has been wrongly used and abused, uh, uh, unfortunately, by some inside the church and by those outside the church to accuse the Bible of endorsing slavery. What you need to know, first of all, is that the Bible never condones involuntary servitude. Never. All right? Just be crystal clear about that. The Bible never condones involuntary servitude forcing someone to work as your slave or as your bondservant. That sort of slavery is a wicked institution from the pit of hell. 
It conjures the wrath of God in both Exodus 21 and in Deuteronomy 24, when in different ways it says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of such a man, the guilty shall be put to death. It's worthy of the death penalty, uh, 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 someone who steals and sells a man to be used as an, uh, as an involuntary servant or slave. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, another uh, letter written by Paul, there's this list of sins in 1 Timothy 1, and one of those sins listed is those who are enslavers, those who kidnap others and force them into labor. And so to be clear, Old Testament and New Testament, that, like, slavery as we understand it in the 21st century is always prohibited. And in Titus 2, this word doulos, which is translated, again, bondservant or slave, is something different from, from what our cultural sensibilities tell us. A bondservant in first century ancient Near East is, has to do with this, like, it's, it's a debt-induced type of servitude that was voluntary. So you owe this big debt. In order to pay that debt, you would volunteer yourself uh, as a bondservant. I'm going to work for you until, until this debt is paid. And it was voluntary, and it included people of all kinds of colors, all kinds of social classes. There were some people who were in the uh, upper, who would be what we consider like the upper middle class, who were considered bondservants because of the type of debt that they owed. Now, this New Testament doulos, they also had important jobs. Bondservants earned a wage. You had your own home uh, that you live at with your family. You had your own possessions. You clocked in and you clocked out. It is nothing like what we understand as uh, just the sin of American slavery that our nation is being complicit in. American slavery was based on race. And it was involuntary. And it was demeaning and it was horrific. The New Testament doulos was based on economics and it was voluntary. And so I just need to clarify that because this verse, again, has been wrongly used to enslave other human beings. And it's also been wrongly weaponized against the church with accusations of endorsing slavery, which is totally understood because many in the, in the church have abused verses like that. When really, like just any, any, any elementary uh, knowledge of the language and the context and the culture and really the full counsel of scripture would show that no, what we understand as American slavery is absolutely prohibited in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, it was the Christian worldview in the hands of men like William Wilberforce and John Newton that put an end to the imperial and colonial slave trades. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, he was a former slave trader. He owned a slave ship, and then he came to saving faith and committed the rest of his life to the liberation of slaves. William Wilberforce was this guy who the Holy Spirit just stirred in his heart as he was reading the scriptures, seeing the whole council of, uh, of, of scriptures, and seeing that, that in, 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 uh, in throughout the, the United Kingdom and in the colonial states, that slavery as it was practiced uh, was absolutely wicked and not from the Lord at all. And so it was these two Christian men that led the charge to abolish slavery in Europe on the basis that all men are created equal and worthy of respect, of dignity, of honor, because we're imbued with the image of God. All men, regardless of color, regardless of class, regardless of creed or religious background, all men are created in the image of God and therefore worth of dignity, worthy, and respect. 
just to be clear. And so what Paul is talking about here between bondservants and masters is a different kind of arrangement altogether. And here's Paul's point. He's saying, despite the circumstances of bond service, despite the debt that you owe and the hardship and difficulty that might be attached to you paying off this debt, despite that, be trustworthy, be honest, be hopeful, adorn the gospel with the assignment and the season of life that you find yourself in. In other words, be good employees. Be good employees. That's a 21st century sort of application for us today. Be good employees, and in your work, work for the glory of God and the good of others. I love how this ver- these verses reveal that the gospel pervasively reaches into all areas of life. That when you encounter uh, when you counter encounter the grace of Christ, it changes all of your life. It even changes the way that you work. The way that you work should put the gospel on display. It means you pursue excellence in your work. He says, "Be well pleasing." Even, even if you're not noticed for it, even if you're not noticed for it, C.S. Lewis gives this example in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, when he, he talks about uh, sort of his conversion experience and, 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 and what uh, the basics of the Christian faith are. And he talks about uh, this, this doctrine of vocation that, that was sort of reclaimed uh, by the Reformation, right? Because in the Reformation area, like what we know is that the Reformation returned us back to the Bible, that we don't, we don't earn our way in, into God's kingdom by paying indulgences to some corrupt system, but no, it's by grace and by faith. But one of the key tenets of the Reformation was this, also this idea of the doctrine of vocation, that every human being who belongs to Jesus is a minister of sorts or a priest of sorts in their workplace. You see, before the Reformation, uh, the Roman Catholic Church taught that, no, it's only the guys in the robes, only the guys that went through the training, only the guys that teach in Latin. They're the ones that are really doing the Lord's work. And your job is to come and just receive from them, receive grace from them. In the Reformation, they looked at the scriptures and they said, that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says that in all that we do, every believer is a saint. Every member of the church is a minister. And you represent God, not just from behind a pulpit, but you represent God from the pews. You represent God out in the public square. So Lewis talks in in, in Near Christianity about how uh, when when, when people like these pioneers would go to this new place and they'd go to this hidden valley that has been previously uncharted uh, and they'd see these these beautiful roses or these beautiful flower bushes that are just like popping up uh, everywhere in these exotic places that were previously hidden and uncharted. Lewis asked the question, was the the beauty of of these flowers, was it wasted? Not... Not, not being seen by a human eye for decades, maybe even centuries, was the beauty of the, these bushes, was it wasted? And his answer is no. No, because they still bring glory to God in their beauty. And so in the same way, you pursue excellence, you'd be well-pleasing in your work, regardless of it's acknowledged or not. The question is, are you just doing the minimum to get by to get your paycheck? Or are you working with excellence? Like your work actually matters for the kingdom. Creating culture doing good to others, making a difference. There used to be a time where uh, Christians were, were, were known for saying phrases like, um, or if we were known for being so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. But man, when you actually look at church history and what the scriptures say, it's if you're so heavenly minded, you're of the most earthly good. It also means that you work with integrity. Don't pilfer, don't steal. 
You also have this servant-type posture. He says you, you work with good faith. You seek the common good of others. Again, it's that doctrine of vocation. And then he ends verse 10 by saying, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The Christian knows that he is not defined by his work, but ultimately by Christ's work on the cross. We like to define ourselves by what we do, don't we? And it's like the second question you ask somebody. First you ask them what's their name, and second question you ask like what they do. We a lot of times find our identity and our value in what we do. But a follower of Jesus knows that there's one position that matters most. It's the position that you have in Christ. And so Paul says, look, the end goal of you doing this is so that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, so that you may adorn the gospel. Now quickly, that word adorn, that word adorn is this Greek word, cosmeo. Cosmeo, which means like to arrange, to adorn. Uh, but you notice in the Greek, cosmeo, it sounds a lot like what word? Cosmetics, right? Like makeup, cosmetics. Now, I don't know a lot about cosmetics, but the little that I do know is the point of cosmetics is not so much to make beauty, but to enhance the beauty that's already there. That's the true purpose of cosmetics. It's this idea of to arrange, to adorn. They would use this word in the first century about like arranging jewels in a way so that the, so that the jewels would actually catch people's eyes. So it wasn't just like this this cluster of jewels, but they would be arranged in a way that just just displayed beauty. Paul says the way that we behave is kind of like that with the gospel. It's not that you make the gospel beautiful. The gospel is already beautiful. But you put that beauty on display by the way that you live for the glory of God and the good of others. The gospel is the good news that our past is taken care of. All the mistakes, all the imperfections, uh, uh, all of our unrighteousness is taken care of by Jesus. The gospel also gives us power for the present, power to live today, not for ourselves, but for the good of others. And the gospel also secures for us a future that God is renewing all things. And so in the way that we live, in the way that we work, in the way that we teach, in the way that we behave in the church and outside the church, put that gospel on display. It's kind of like how how um, uh, how uh, what, like when you're taking uh, when you're taking your uh, your temperature, you know how like you stick the thermometer just like right under your eyelid, right? Like no, no one does that, right? Like that's not where you take your temperature. There's like a few places that you can take your temperature under your tongue, uh, under your armpit. Let's just say a few other places, right? There's a few places, there's a few specific places that you can take your temperature. Uh, and Paul focuses here as he's breaking down the older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and he gives us these character traits. They're, they're, they're almost like temperature points. To say, hey, if these things are present in these areas, man, that means the gospel's on fire in that person's heart. The gospel's on display. It is, it is, it is showing beauty to the world. And this word of putting the gospel on the display, like Paul uses this in other places. He says in Ephesians 7, you show the gospel, you put it on display, you manifest it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about how, how the church, uh, the gospel is the aroma of Christ. In other words, when you believe the gospel and it actually spills out into God glorifying and others blessing a type of behavior, that's the kind of thing that makes people go, what is that? What is, what is, what is that aroma? It, it draws people in. Like when someone's baking cookies in the other room and you're like, oh, what's going on in there, right? 
Like that's the kind of effect that it should have in a world that is broken and longing for hope, longing for truth, goodness, and beauty. So you don't make the truth as a follower of Jesus. You adorn it. Let the gospel mark your life. Which would mark your life the most, more than anything, more than your color, more than your class, more than the creed of your denomination, which should mark your life the most, is that your life reflects the very life, death, and resurrection of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That because of the gospel, you've been changed to the core from the inside out. As we close, I want you to notice that these instructions given to men and to women and to bond servants with their job these these are these are mundane uh, these are mundane sort of commands, aren't they? He's just talking about just the everyday stuff of life, just ordinary life. It's this principle that I want to leave you with that God shows off His extraordinary glory through ordinary lives of faithfulness. God, normally, what's normative throughout history and that we see in the scriptures is that God shows off his extraordinary glory through ordinary lives of faithfulness. You want to know how the extraordinary glory of God is display, is on display? It's not what we think. It's subversive. It's not a picture of revival. It's not a best-selling book. It's not, it's not these incredible signs. It's not this, this, this book or this podcast or this, this stage with a fog machine and laser lights and, and the whole deal. It's a mom with her kids. It's an old man with steadfast hope. It's an old woman teaching the Bible to others. It's a young man exercising self-discipline. These are the ordinary moments that God's extraordinary grace is put on display. And so we might be tempted because we live in a hyper-individualistic Western society that, man, when we want to display the glory of God, we got to go big. we got to go individualistic. we got we got to just chase after it. And, man, if that's on your heart, like, go for it. Make a difference for the Lord. But know that that's what's normative, is that that's not what it's all about. The extraordinary glory of God is often on display in the most ordinary of places. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.